This episode is part two of a two-part series finale for this season of Dead and Buried. So if you've just tuned in, we suggest you start with the previous episode, Those Bloody Kids, part one. Listeners should be advised that the following contains coarse language, references to sex and drugs, as well as sexual violence, which may be distressing for some listeners. We've also bleeped out the names of some living individuals to help protect their privacy. I'd like to say, uh, I said I get a special studio called the guys of the White Horse. Yeah. Howdy. Suck my kids. I think that's what it is. No Sharpies from the area were missing those gigs. Like, it was just stacked to the back. In, in some ways, you have the urge to celebrate the idea of brazen femininity, but I think you have to be careful about doing that as well because this was not something you would be suggesting a good friend of yours would, you know, just be part of this scene. I think it was more like, I'd die before I'd be like you. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I'd do anything not to be like you. So you would have been just sitting around there by lamplight staring at each other. So the obvious thing is to, to go out and hang out on the streets. And, um, and that's, I, I think that was a big driving force behind why larrikin culture began to start with. Every generation has a rebellious group. You'd walk in the city, nearly everybody was wearing a hat. Everybody was in grey or blue or brown, you know. And we stood out in colour. Welcome to Dead and Buried, a series which delves deep into the underground history of Melbourne and beyond. I'm Lee Hooper. And I'm Kylie Godden. This episode, we continue our deep dive into some of the most striking and rebellious subcultures to flare up and burn out amongst Melbourne teens and young adults. And for the period from the 1960s, what their role was in shaping the sound and trajectory of arguably some of Australia's most successful rock music acts. First, we're back with Sharpie Shane Shane. Uh, and was it just guys in these groups or were there girls? No, never, never. Um, I, when I was about 15, I met a girl called um, Her sister were the toughest girls in Strathmore. Met her in the city, she had a Sharpie haircut, short, all over, so did her sister. I liked it, they looked great, you know, the full makeup look, you know. But no, they they were um, great chicks. I started going out with her, fell in love with her. And from then on, she was the leader of the females. And there was always a female gang with whatever gang we were with. It was a group of girls that were always with us. They were their own sharps too. Yeah, and were the girls kind of just as fierce and had just oh, as yeah. fierce reputation? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I still... Um, yeah, I, I run to people now and go, oh, I remember you from Strathmore High. You used to go out with... Yeah, she even belted me. <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. Everybody remembers her. So, no, uh, the girls were, yeah, pretty fierce as well. Uh, but, I mean, they had to be, you know. They were just as hard as the guys. They got what we were about a lot quicker than the guys. Historian Dr Melissa Belanta. Teenage girls were absolutely a part of the larrikin scene. There's so many scattered references in the re- the record to mobs of larrikins and brazen-faced larrikinesses, you know, I'm quoting, or groups of larrikins and prostitutes, which 
always almost was just code for disreputable looking young woman or young blackguards of both sexes you know that so that you get that sense of just the the presence of girls as part as a mundane part of the kind of larrikin street culture from from those sorts of uh, reports in police gazettes in court reports in newspaper articles and such things and they're often described doing the sorts of things I talked about before, drinking beer together in a vacant lot late at night, gathered on a street corner, going to dance halls, um, etc. So it's clear that there were you know, female participants in the larrikin culture. That said, it's a really masculinist scene. I mean, this is a, a scene that places this huge premium on being cocksure and good with your fists. And, you know, that exposed the young women that took part in this scene to the risk of assault and sexual harassment from male friends and hangers-on. I mean, there's some horrible examples, um, quite notorious ones in Sydney anyway, of gang rapes of, of women by male larrikins. Not uh, women that were, you know, girls that were part of, that were friends, that said. They would be um, strangers to them, but... Um, there's also kind of scattered examples of young men who were friends or boyfriends, you know, and described as part of the larrikin scene, assaulting um, women that, that, that they hung out with. Uh, there's a few sort of scattered examples of, of some um, gang rapes or attempted ones in Melbourne as well, one in um, Collingwood involving the brother of the gambling identity, John Wren, for example, or a, another attempted gang rape actually by members of that Flying Angels push that I mentioned earlier. But, yeah, there's also examples of, you know, say young women like Fitzroy teenagers Elizabeth Fry and um, Etty Dickens, who staged bare knuckle, a bare-knuckle fight in a vacant lot in the district in 1890, surrounded by this huge cheering crowd. Other stray examples of, of girls holding fistfights um, with boys cheering them on. Harriet Adderley was a female larrikin associated with a group known as the Crutchy Push. To understand her involvement, we should first fill you in a bit more about the gang. Here's writer and historian Michael Shelford. So the, the Crutchy Push were a, a North Melbourne gang. Uh, really, the height of their powers as a larrikin push was probably 1895 to 1905. Quite a number of their gang um, had disabilities. So there's... I mean, the longer we go into history, the more romanticised people's memories of it were. And I've read newspaper articles saying there was 30 men with one leg marching like an army up the streets of North Melbourne. I've really only come across about six or seven members that have various disabilities. Um, they've gotten a real name for themselves in North Melbourne. Just standover tactics, going into shops and hotels, demanding free drinks, you know, free tobacco at the local tobacconist, taking on the police whenever they saw them. But they, they did make good use of their crutches. They fought well with them. When, when you get people who are actually, you know, fighting... It's all, all about the, the length of their arms. You know, you get something like boxing or something like that, and it's what's called a, your reach. Um, the longer reach you have, the more chance you have of hitting the other person without them being able to hit you. And when you've got a crutch, your reach is just that much longer. They were just able to keep people away from them. If somebody's trying to get them, they just keep hitting them in the chest with the toe of their crutch. They also used to use the crutches just to um, you know, clear the top shelf of the pub if they weren't giving them free drinks. It cost them a fortune, break the windows of the pub. So they, they, were, they were real, real trouble and, and 
the reason why they were able to cause so much um, mischief for so long was that the judges actually used to feel quite sorry for them. So if they come into court, they're on one leg, they'd realise that it was difficult for them to make a living um, by having a normal occupation. So if they were caught for um, you know petty theft or for violence or something like that, it was just generally seen as because they hadn't been given as good a start as anybody else. So they used to get light, light sentences. And the more they got away with things, the more they thought they could get away with. Harriet Adderley became romantically involved with the leader, Valentine Keating. She'd been married for a short time to a first cousin, James Norman Adderley, and had a child with him, but her attention soon turned to Keating. In 1904, Harriet and Valentine Keating became involved in a serious incident with a guy called John Collins, who was also a member of the Crutchy Push. They were using their standover tactics in a house in North Melbourne, which was occupied by Annie and James Smith. When the trio refused to leave, the Smiths called in the help of the police. Senior Constable Mulkey was met at the garden gate by Valentine, who threatened him. Harriet also came out onto the street, allegedly saying, if you put your finger near him, I will split your skull. Valentine Keating was arrested, but got into a brawl with the officer and started wrestling him. When they were on the ground, Harriet Adderley... Kicked the police officer in the face, stomped on his head. Um, she threatened she was going to crack his skull. And um, a plainclothes or an off-duty police officer not in uniform came to his assistance. Several other members of the gang, the Crutchies, also turned up as well. And um, it gets to the point where Valentine Keating dragged the police officer to the ground by his legs and uh, sent to John Collins, the member of the other member of the Crutchy Push, Crutch him, Collo. And, um, and Collins picked up Valentine Keating's crutch and clubbed the police officer over the head. You know, they were a very dangerous weapon, the crutch. They used to have a, a metal shod armrest on them rather than the nice padded ones we get today. So they used to do an immense amount of damage and he fractured the police officer's skull. The court hearing had to be delayed because Senior Constable Malky was too ill to be called up as a witness and at one point they feared for his life. When he eventually came to court, Malky complained that he was still pulling fragments of bone out of the healing wound on his head. And on a somewhat oddly romantic note, Valentine pleaded with the court to give Harriet a lighter sentence. For that assault... Valentine Keating and Collins got five years each in jail and that was pretty much the end of the gang. Harriet Adderley, for her part in the assault, got one year um, and, yeah, that was, that was the end of that famous old gang called the Crutchy Push. It was a really risky thing, and it was a it was a gutsy thing. You're exposing yourself to to much greater risk when you think about it. If you're a female taking part in this um, this street scene, than if you're a male, you know, just if you're just talking about gutsiness. But it's yeah, it's a, it's a difficult topic. This was not um, in in some ways that you have the urge to celebrate the idea of brazen femininity, but I think you have to be careful about doing that as well because. This was not something you would be suggesting a good friend of yours would, you know, just be part of this scene. Beginning in 1864, both state-run and privately-run reformatory institutions operated in Victoria. 
and in practice were used for children considered to need stronger discipline than those directed to foster care. I think it was pretty difficult for uh, a female to become a typical larrikin in those days just because of the way that the, they were viewed by the police and by, um, by the judiciary system. So in those, in those days, um, society seemed to have a very overprotective approach to young females. So if, if there was a girl who um, was outside at night time, um, they think that it was going to be dangerous, they'd be worried about what the um, male larrikins might get up to. Um, and they would attempt to get her off the streets. So it was very difficult for a female gang to form in that sense. Um, generally, what I've come across in the police files, if there was a young female who was um, out and about and they thought that as a result she might be in danger, the police would actually escort her home to her parents, ask the parents for an answer for why they were allowing her out to begin with. Um, and if that kept occurring, the police would often um, have her charged with um, being an uncontrollable child. And what they'd be trying to do there would actually be having her institutionalised, so um, set off to a private institution like the Salvation Army or the convent, where she, she was um, taught to be, behave like a, a proper lady. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, it was, it was kind of difficult for, for females, I guess, to, to form their own, their own gangs. The police also introduced a special unit to deal with larrikin pushers, known as the Terrible Ten. Consisting of the ten most burliest policemen in Victoria, they were issued lengths of hose and set out to beat the pushers into submission. In the 1950s and 60s, reformatory institutions often became rebranded as youth training centres, but the name change didn't necessarily reflect a change in their purpose. Children considered to be in moral danger could be placed into state care under the 1954 Child Welfare Act, and especially for teenage girls, this could include being placed under care due to evidence or even just a perception that they were sexually active. Former Sharpies have commented that some Sharps spent time in youth training centres in metropolitan Melbourne, Tirana for teenage boys and Wynn for teenage girls. In the 1950s, police revived an old concept and the bodgie squad was introduced to control delinquent teens, especially bodgies and widgies. Uh, first reaction was shock horror, try to shut us down. Uh, the police set up their own force to attack us. Yeah, they, they were after us big time, uh, especially in the beginning. Uh, they thought they could shut us down during the mod era. Music journalist Jenjil Brown. Yeah, the media certainly uh, were very interested in sharps and... Uh, the idea that gangs would be fighting and this was something they could write about and it was very photogenic. Uh, if they could get anyone to photograph, it was more likely to be somebody that hadn't had a fight but that was walking down the street. Uh, the press jumped into it, but then I think they were a bit scared about fear. It's before they learned how to market fear, you know. And they didn't, uh, they didn't want to panic people, so they didn't make it like, oh, we've got a problem. But bubbling up, Occasionally, you would see more often in the papers gang fights, sharpies in trouble, you know, all this kind of stuff. But sharpies were a very musical group. They were very, very into bands. Um, they bought a lot of records. We used to really support Australian music, I mean, as far as going out to clubs and that, because we're all under 18, but we'd go out and see bands constantly. 
by 1966, and sorry Sydney listeners, um, but by 1966, Melbourne dethroned Sydney uh, as Australia's rock and pop capital. So it's about time that we talked a little bit more about the music, which was so central to the development in this period of Melbourne U Street culture. We're starting in the mid-1960s with many of the tough garage rock bands, some of whom were favoured by the so-called mod purists and the stylists. According to musicologist Dr Paul Oldman, better known as Naz, many of these bands had or would eventually relocate to Melbourne. Let's have a look. So from Melbourne, Wild Cherries, Running, Jumping, Standing Still, The Eloy, that's some, an example, Sydney, The Missing Links, of course, um, The Throb, um, also from New South Wales, the Black Diamonds, Brisbane, the Purple Hearts, Adelaide, Masters Apprentices, Blues Rags and Hollers, Decoys, um, and then again, New Zealand was a, are a part of this. But things like bands like Chance R and B. These groups provided a foundation for the next wave of bluesy bands, some of whom would become Sharpie favourites. There was a whole load of bluesy style bands in Melbourne that. Uh, were very popular and very good musicians. I think you've got to kind of point to acts like Daddy Cool. Jen's old housemate, Ross Wilson's band. We'd all go along to Ross's gigs, of course. You know, got our names on the door a lot. Um, but then the pub rock originators as well. Um, so da Daddy Cool were a little middle class and they didn't really necessarily like the pub atmosphere and the drinking audiences quite that much but you would like I, I place Lobby Lloyd very much central to the creation of, of pub rock um, and th through many things that he's been a part of but that's you know you can't go past Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, Chain, Black Feather, the Lardy Dars, Matter Lake, Piranha and um, the Coloured Balls. The Sharpies had a connection first to pub rock and then to Oz rock. And that was as some of its most enthusiastic early crowds um, and as some of its most enduring and, and it, you know, sometimes problematic as well. The thing about Oz rock is it's the dominant form of Australian pub rock from the early 1970s to the mid 1980s. And so in that tradition, uh, Cold Chisel, ACDC, Skyhooks, Angels, Rose Tattoo, Finch, Screaming Jets, and even Midnight Oil and In Excess. So it's staple ingredients, if we're going to look at those, like, traits. Um, and this is, again, it, it, like, this is a little troublesome because it's often, but not always, these things. Okay, so astonishingly high volumes... <laughs> That's something we're well known for. Um, powerful vocals, high energy, tougher muscular kind of approach, and very common to it, but again, not always, was uh, driving blues and boogie bass. And I think we should also then put Oz Rock, it, because I think of it as kind of a little, an ecology. Let's put it in the environments. So, like, you know, the pubs, but also those really, really big beer barns. And also, very important to it is its drinking audiences, okay? But that's, that's a big part of that beer-soaked ecology of, of Oz Rock. But what were these venues called beer barns or beer halls? Let's back up a bit. 
in fact a lot. Sunday closing in bars and pubs had long been enforced in Melbourne and was a reason why what was called the sly grog trade grew up in inner suburbs where people would obtain alcohol illegally out of hours. Prior to World War I, on the other days of the week, most pubs and bars in Australia would generally close at around 11.30pm. But during the Great War, the closing time was changed to 6pm sharp. And in Victoria, it remained that way until 1966. This resulted in people racing to the bar after work to down as many drinks as possible, known colloquially as the six o'clock swill. Pubs got really, really big, um, and people would just be 20 people to the bar, people not moving, just getting smashed. The beer barns are kind of venues that are related to or grew up around that kind of tradition, so rather than 300, 400 person pub, a beer barn would be thousands of people. So, and that's where Oz Rock really flourished the most. So, you know, and, and they're also included in that are things like surf clubs. But yeah, there was the Australian, the Oz Rock venue tended to be like just hold a lot of people and all of those people would be drunk. Sharpies would like, uh, they like glam music. Um, they like hard rock and roll. Um, we, we used to say in the mid-70s, we used to follow Early Kiss, uh, Sensational Alex Harvey Band, um, Skyhooks. I don't know why, I never really liked Skyhooks. But I think it's because they were talking about local things, you know, mentioning local areas, local shops, people got that. ACDC were, you know, it's basically straight Aussie pub rock was the Sharpie sound of that era. And we supported it so much, you know, we, we kind of thought it was all for us, you know, so we, we loved it. Many Sharpies also favoured international glam bands like T-Rex, Gary Glitter, Susie Quattro, Sensational Alex Harvey Band, Slade, and even secretly, ABBA. Although not much has changed there, right? Girls doing the Sharpie dance, a kind of awkward, stilted number, can be seen on footage of glam bands like Hush on the national music show Countdown, Australia's answer to Britain's Top of the Pops or the United States Bandstand. But probably one of the earliest and most significant connections between the Sharpies and pub rock was their kinship to Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. From 1971, the Aztecs had a residency at the Sharpie Bastion, the Whitehorse Hotel in the suburb of Nunawadding, and had played at the Village Green in Mulgrave. And the Sharpies had already been following them. Their, that kind of relationship was kind of galvanised. And what's important to know is that some people were already starting to avoid Sharpie audiences because they were too tough or boisterous, and they certainly were at the Village Green. And... So that the Aztecs and the Sharpies kind of earn the respect of each other, and that's kind of, that's where the the phrase "suck more piss" was born. And for any non-Australian listeners, we should probably explain, by the way, that piss is slang for beer, which is still enduring to this day. And it kind of got attached to the the Aztecs through the Sharpies. So they were like it was a no nobody. Like, nobody missed those gigs. No Sharpies from the area were missing those gigs. Like, it was just stacked to the back. 
and they were really, really fierce and into it. During the 1972 Sunbury Music Festival, which arguably heralded in the age of pub rock in Australia, Billy Thorpe gave a special shout out to the guys at the White Horse. But I, I think what's telling and a takeaway from this is that the kind of ferocity and danger and enthusiasm of that Sharpie crowd is pretty closely entwined in, in how we see the audiences um, in that whole pub rock mythos. This kind of alliance was also formed with the musician Lobby Lloyd's band, The Coloured Balls. There, there are some things that happen in terms of the rise and fall of the Sharpies and also the Coloured Balls that are intertwined. Um, I think neither um, needed the other, but they like so like you should be able to talk about the colored balls without sharpies. You should be able to talk about the sharpies without the colored balls. But there's a very interesting relationship that kind of happens there, because the colored balls from a, from '72 to '74, the colored balls were the number one sharpie band, in 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 my findings. And part of what kind of underlines that is the colored balls got a really closely cropped haircut, right, when everybody else had long hair. Um, and so that, that was kind of um, an identifying moment for Sharpies. Now, Lobby always says that it's just a coincidence. They were the only band with clo closely cropped hair. According to Naz, the media soon leapt upon this association and started to label coloured balls gigs as Sharpie gigs. At first, the reviews were positive, but when a few violent incidences occurred, the media jumped at it. Things snowballed. As Coloured Balls gigs became known more and more for being violent, they attracted ever more people looking for a fight. Sometimes this included Sharpies, but also just plain hard nuts. The usual kind of rough behaviour you'd expect to see at any venue had escalated to scary levels. And for this, according to Naz, the Coloured Balls gigs were shunned by the mainstream media. Arguably, however, violence and a culture of hyper-masculinity had long been part and parcel of the pub and Oz Rock scene. But, I, look, I, I think most of the gigs that I went through to through the 80s were also absolutely wild punch-ups. There's nothing like alcohol and Aussie guys full of testosterone, you know, eyeing off the same chick in a venue to, to get a fight going. I think a lot of them are pretty keen on fighting, so... I don't know that the Sharps were sort of really all that bad. You know, maybe they, in a way they were sort of... Because they, I guess, were pumped up to be these violent gangs, they, they kind of revelled in that a bit. Naz believes that with the dissolving of the coloured balls and Lobby Lloyd's departure to England, so too did the Sharpie phase begin to decline. Many Sharpies across each generation got on with their lives anyway, some going on to have families. But in the late 1970s and early 80s, for some Sharpies at least, a new and ferocious movement was sweeping through Australia. There's all different influences coming in and the one that kind of stirred us up was punk. Because what we didn't realise is Sharpies were actually punks. But we didn't know it. For Shane, the initial transition from Sharpie into punk culture wasn't exactly plain sailing. Shane had been playing in a garage rock band with some members of his then current Sharpie gang. 
We played round for a little while. We did one show at Oak Park. We hired a hall, stole a PA, stole all the equipment, set up, played there. Um, the night ended in just a mass drunken smash up. It was fantastic. It was one of the really first punk gigs and all I did was run around the hall screaming at people. So it was fantastic. We did one show and then we got arrested for pinching all the stuff and shit. Um, we hired all this gear fucked off. Really. Um, and after all that, like the band broke up and I thought, oh yeah, that was fun, you know. But when Shane came home, a rival member of another gang was waiting for him. And him and our half a dozen guys with guns over there to kill me. So I took off that night, I bluffed them and got out. I said, basically, you and I will have a one out and, you know, no one's walking away from this, you know. In other words, one of us is going to die. Let's go outside and have it. So they're putting the guns down and I fucked off. So anyway, I went back home and I, first day I was back there, I opened up the Herald and inside there's a picture of uh, teenage radio stars. New punk sensation, you know, punk had come to Melbourne, you know. And, and the boys next door and the models and all that were in the paper. I thought, oh, good on them. Next day they were knocking at my door and they said, do you want to come back and sing with us? And so the former members of Teenage Radio Stars and Shane from their own band, La Femme, and about a year later they appeared on Countdown. Well, we had a single out with the independent group Missing Link. It went number one on the UK charts independently. But the song Chelsea Kids I wrote as a farewell to my Sharpie days. You know, like, goodbye to all this, you know. And all that kind of stuff. It was basically me saying goodbye to all that. But the trouble was, when that single came out, all the Sharpies loved it and started following us. And so we got a big Sharpie following and punk following. So I thought, oh, well, obviously no one reads the words. As for the larrikin, Harriet Adderley, we know that her hard lifestyle must have taken its toll. The, the next time that I come across uh, Harriet Adderley and Valentine Keating was after Valentine Keating had done his five years in prison and there was a few more years added on to that. We're talking 1913. They're still living in North Melbourne. They've still obviously got a problem with alcohol. Uh, Harriet Adderley was in danger of being charged with attempted suicide which is something that you could be in prison for in those days. Lysol, in case you were wondering, is a brand of disinfectant, which is actually still around today. But what had happened to Harriet? The story from Valentine Keating's side of things was that they'd just been on a three-day bender and um, that he said that she hadn't been depressed. There was nothing um, about her behaviour which made him think that she would take her own life. Um, and that she'd stated to him that she just thought it was like a bottle of whiskey or something like that. She was so smashed. So who knows, it might have been the case. For her remaining years, Harriet worked in the illegal sly grog trade alongside Valentine, but died young in 1921 at the age of 41. But why did the word larrikin come to mean something so entirely different? When mainstream society picks up youth slang or identities, we see this happening now, and starts talking or using those terms, you know, showing their sort of au fait with, like, the latest lingo, often those terms end up having a lot less to do with young people or young people stop using them, but, you know, more to do with a caricaturised version of what the press and popular culture think they mean. 
And I think in some ways you see that happening in the early 20th century. You see the emergence of so-called larrikin acts by low comedians in inner-city variety theatre acts, featuring inner-city men that are not necessarily young, but they're joking about getting drunk and about hating work and about generally being badly behaved and hanging out in, in the streets. And you see numerous other examples of that around the time. So C.J. Dennis, you know, publishes The Songs of a Sentimental Bloke in 1915. It's a series of narrative-linked poems featuring these happy-go-lucky larrikins. They're a member of a street push in Melbourne, is how the verse presents them. And they hang around in pubs, they fight police when they get in trouble, they're kind of happy-go-lucky. But once again, they're not specifically identified as teenagers as such or as, as adolescents. There's a film made of the, uh, the Sentimental Bloke in 1919. It becomes incredibly famous, uh, bestseller in Australia at the time. The two characters that play Bill and Ginger Mick, who are the two larrikin characters, are not at all young. You know, Arthur Torshier, he's this guy, he's kind of quite fat. I think he'd probably be in his 30s. <laughs> but he had been a also a low comedian, probably performing these sorts of larrikin acts that I'm talking about in variety theatre around that time. Yeah, so it's interesting also that the sentimental bloke and a kind of spin-off work of verse that C.J. Dennis published in 1916 called The Moods of Ginger Mick, both of which are just enormous bestsellers. It's, it's, they're really they really create quite a stir in Australian popular culture at the time. And both are very popular among World War I servicemen, partly because Ginger Mick, in the moods of Ginger Mick, goes off to war. He's a larrikin that decides to enlist and goes off to the Middle East. So they're sort of directly signalling that he's sort of relevance to First World War servicemen. And there are examples of those poems being performed by concert troops for people at the war, and there's this kind of merging that happens from around that time of the digger figure and this jovial, happy-go-lucky, larrikin kind of type. So you see the digger character, the lov lovable larrikin comedian stereotype, and in many ways we live with that. We've lived with that ever since. According to Shane, his band La Femme broke up in 1983 due to the usual toxic rock and roll meltdown of substance abuse and commercial and artistic differences with his recording company. But he got himself together in the end. Yeah, a lot of people got, you know, they, they made mistakes and fucked themselves up. Uh, but most of them pulled through it pretty well. Uh, look, even the angry, violent criminal ones got their shit together now, you know. Um, I think if they weren't sharps, they would have really been lost. You know, they found their allies and things, and quite often accomplices too, but, you know, it helped rationalise a lot of people, having similar-minded people around them. And, uh, you know, even those that went criminal, they come back. There's been a new community grow, which I think is probably the most fascinating thing that I've seen happen, full stop. I mean, it is around the Facebook groups. So the Sharpies themselves started to get together to share experiences, histories, um, and get back in touch, right? And like, I, and it started small, um, and they were sharing pictures, um, and people would, like, people from the third generation would have no idea about what happened over here and what, like, in, in the past there, and people in the 60s really 
didn't want anything to do with the latest stuff, but now they're interested. And they're kind of sharing what, what it really was for them. I think everybody's caught up in looking at history through their own sort of painful adolescence and the various disasters that occurred to them along the way. Or, you know, uh, sometimes they might look at it with rose-coloured glasses, but I don't think Sharpies are a thing that many people have rose-coloured glasses over, unless they're tinted with blood. Naz believes that with the safety of the passage of time, and for younger generations in particular, who don't have that stigma of those who experienced Sharpie antics or us-versus-them attitudes firsthand, there is a definite renewed interest in Sharpie culture. And you could also argue that the Sharpie ethos and the bands traditionally associated with them are being drawn upon by recent waves of Melbourne and Australian musicians, like Amal and the Sniffers, amongst others. But then again... But there are still Sharpies that will not talk about it at all. Like, who were very prominent Sharpies at the time, or they, they will talk with other Sharpies about it, but they won't talk with people outside of the culture about it. Um, and, you know, there's a lot more interest and a lot more people asking questions. And the Facebook groups give a lot of space for that. And I think they're incredibly patient. But you do need to remember who you're dealing with. <laughs> and they, will, they won't suffer fools for very, <laughs> for very long if you're, if you're being a bit of a dickhead. They'll put you back in your place which is kind of nice to be reminded. They were, they were on the streets of Melbourne. You could see them. They were around. Uh, they were flourishing for a while there before, you know, like a lot of crazes, they, they disappear and move on. But um, the, the music they're associated with uh, is still a big favourite with rockers today. All kinds of rock bands look back on that period when uh, bands took the blues that was electrified and turned it into something uniquely powerful and strong and Australian. And This is a part of our history that we need to recoup rather than erase, which was definitely the mode before. So things don't have to be pretty. They don't have to be pleasant for us to remember them. I can spot a sharp anywhere. It's just something about the way they carry themselves, the way they talk. It's it's kind of like, um, you know, football teams or military always had that connection for life. Well, we had that, you know. We went through a thing that we all understood and scared ourselves at moments and enjoyed moments. And it was a group experience that everybody had and we all had that in common. And those that went through it walk a little bit different. So this is our final episode for season two. And I'd just like to thank the production team, Lee Hooper, Christian O'Brien, Alicia Norton, who's Wiz on comms, um, and many others that helped make this season possible. We've had such an amazing time and maybe we'll see you back here in the future. See you next time. Bye. This episode was produced, researched and written by me, Carly Godden, with editing and production support by Lee Hooper. 
Mixing, audio production and the original score was by Christian O'Brien and our Dead and Buried theme music is by Robin Waters. You can find the full list of music credits on our website. Jen Jewel Brown is the author of Skyhooks, Million Dollar Riff and Michael, My Brother, Lost Boy of In Excess, along with Tina Hutchins. Melissa Belanta's book, Larrikin's History, is still available online. I'd also like to especially thank former Sharpie and author Julie Mack for pointing me in the right direction when I first started researching this topic. And finally, if you want to hear more from Michael Shelford, you can experience him in the flesh on his Melbourne historical crime tours. Just look it up. Season 2 of Dead and Buried was assisted by the Australian Government through the Australia Council, its arts funding and advisory body, and the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria.